Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in Military History. I am Boris Karpa, and we have with us today Vlad Besedovsky, and he will talk to us about a unique book, which is called Uniforms and History of the Soviet Airborne in, in Afghanistan. And Vlad is a person of uh, who has different types of experience. He's both the director of Safar Publishing, which publishes military history books, and he is, most importantly, also an author of several books on military history and weapons. And most importantly, he is the author of this one, which, as we established, talks about the Soviet airborne in Afghanistan. Vlad, I'm happy to have you here with us today. Uh, good day, Boris. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about your book. What is it about? What does it bring to the table? Just a moment. I think we have a technical problem because that uh, the recording line on my side is not showing any signs of life. I can, I can see. I can see it. I can see that there are. Ah, okay, okay, I, okay, fine then. Um, yeah, uh, hello, Boris. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Uh, and um, yes, my name is Vlad. I'm the author of the Airborne book, the Soviets Airborne in Afghanistan. And uh, right now, I'm in the process of making a couple more books. So this is the only one I have finished. But in 2023, we are planning to publish. At least two more books. So yeah. So, oh, sorry. But by the end of the, the next year, so by the end of 2024, I should have about three to four books published by my name. That is very good. And you will, you will of course be welcome here when you have those books again. But can you tell us a little bit more about the Airborne book? What it, is it about? What does it bring to the table? Absolutely. So the Soviet Airborne uh, in Afghanistan is the book uh, which mainly focuses on the on, well on one, one particular Soviet Airborne regiment in Afghanistan, and it depicts uh, all the weapons, uniforms, equipment used uh, at the time by this particular regiment, which pretty much uh, covers all other Airborne regiments as well. Uh, the book also covers uh, a little bit about the whole situation about the soldier's life, about the tactics and so on. But uh, its main focus would be on the photography and to show the equipment and the uniforms at the time. You know, there's always, we we are here, you know, creatures of tradition here. Uh, academics, you know, like so, like soldiers, also creatures of tradition. We always ask, you know, how did you choose the subject uh, for this particular book? Oh, this is the question I get quite often, and people assume that I have uh, I had some relatives uh, serving in Afghanistan, but uh, that's not the case. For me, it was uh, it was kind of random. So when I uh, started playing airsoft and doing reenactment back uh, back in the day, I got into the group of people who was uh, well revolving around this uh, area uh, around this topic. And uh, as time passed by, I got uh, more and more interested in the topic. Uh, My collection of uniforms and equipment started to pile up. And then at some point, I decided that uh, I want to put it in some sort of finished form. So basically, like to finish up my collection with something uh, instead of just letting it, you know, stay stay under the bed for, for, for eternity. 
so this is how this how I chose the subject. This is how the book uh, started. Well, and uh, from this, you know, I, I, this uh, from reading this book, I can see that it's um, it's undergone. You know, while you were writing it, while you were working on this book, it's undergone a little bit of an evolution. It's clearly started as one of these reenactor books, which we see uh, sometimes, where we know where you just describe the uniforms, the gear, but it's grown beyond this, hasn't it? And. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the work process, about how this book evolved while you were making it? Yeah, absolutely. This uh, this is correct, and well, you can see it from the book itself that it's been evolving as it was uh, as the work progress was going on. So at first, we were planning uh, to make some sort of a photo album of those people who performed in the in the project. Well, the project wasn't. We didn't plan to make a book at first. It was just like photo project of making just a couple of different photo impressions of the soldiers of the time. Uh, as it was, as, as there were more, more and more photos coming in, uh, I decided it should be in, again, some, some sort of finished form. I was thinking more about uh, like a magazine article, uh, but we were getting more and more photos and it became quite obvious that, let's say, 10 pages or 20 pages in the magazine not going to cut it and we need some, some big work, some something like well at least a magazine itself but more like a book uh then i had the idea that i should actually make the book on uh, all possible uniforms and equipments and impressions of the afghan war we did some work towards that so we had some uh, impressions of infantry and engineers and air force and so on but it uh, soon became really obvious that for for a book like this to be completed to be ridiculously big it would be like up to 1,000 pages, maybe. <laughs> so uh, making it in one book wouldn't make any practical sense. Uh, so at this point, again, I started narrowing it down. I narrowed it down to Airborne, to VDV. Again, it became obvious that it will be really hard to cover all the VDV units in one book. It's, again, will be pretty big. And uh, it would take just a bit too much time to finish it. So I decided to narrow it down to one exact regiment, and this is how I got the book in the form which you can see it now. Uh, but overall, yes, the work uh, took me quite some time. I think I was working on it in total of around five years. This is a lot, and I wouldn't recommend anyone to <laughs> to work so long on, on one project uh, like this one, uh, because it does add a lot of complexity. Uh, for example, the photos we've been taking for the book, uh, like if you look at the book now, most of the photos will be from the last two years of the work. So the very early ones, wouldn't, we didn't use them because they were just not good enough. We didn't like the standards as we progressed in producing better uh, photographs. And uh, same goes with the text. So when I was writing texts back in 2016, 2017, rereading them again in 2020, I didn't like them. I had to sit down and rewrite them completely. Yeah, yeah, this is this is regular writers thing, like rewriting and rewriting. This is probably a natural process. But uh, as a person, as a writer, you progress uh, over time. So keeping a project for too long, you you just end up uh, redoing it, rewriting and retaking photos, reshaping everything. And uh, this this is an infinite process. So you you need to have a some sort of a plan and put a full stop at some point and publish the book and. This was this was a hard moment for me to actually finish it off and stop doing any improvements. 
brings me around, which brings me around to something which I want to ask you, you know, because, again, this is a new books network, and many people who are in our audience, you know, they are considering, maybe they are working on their own book, maybe they are considering working on their own book, and as somebody who has written a book and who is working on uh, additional books, do you have anything which you would like to tell the audience about your working process, about some of the obstacles which you've overcome? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so, well, I can be, I can base my experience on this book and on those uh, two more which I'm working on right now. I would definitely say that the main thing is to actually have a plan and uh, to have some sort of a reasonable timetable, which I would advise people to have something between six and 12 months to finish off any sort of uh, book project. Oh, at least most of them. I mean, some some books would require more time for research. Some would require more time for writing. But I would advise everyone to aim for for the period between six to twelve months. Um, for, for the reasons I explained in the previous question, so just as, that you, as, as the time progresses, you need you want to improve the book more, and this can be like an infinite infinite uh, loop. Yeah, that makes sense. No, no, so we need to have a, a, table, a timetable. We want to avoid getting into an editing loop of sorts. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, uh, so, so this is how I start uh, my new project now. So basically, I write a table of contents, which is the plan itself, essentially. I do allow myself some reasonable timeline, timetable, like for one of my books, it's six months, and I think we started in very early September. So I'm actually planning to finish a bit earlier by the end of this year. Uh, and then, uh, uh, the, the, of course, the, there are some obstacles uh, in any project, and book would not be an exception. Uh, the, the, the usual ones would be financial ob obstacles, technical and motivational. Those are the ones I wrote down for this question. And uh, well, the, the financial depends on the on the project and the book. Uh, Again, most books wouldn't really uh, cost you too much to produce. But if you have photographs, if, if there are photographs, if there is equipment which you must photograph, then to have this, then this would cost money to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. So, so for me, it was kind of simpler because I got the collection or most of the collection first, and then I decided to take a photo of it. It was so I was spending money on it without having project in mind. It was just a hobby. Uh, but uh, starting from scratch, this of course would cost. A lot of time and a lot of money because uh, just to bring the collection together would it would t take some effort you know uh, and uh, i would say but the, the main obstacle would be the, the motivational one because uh, it's easy to start something it's hard to complete it and especially if you don't have some sort of a goal at the end like if you don't know why you're doing it so this is something definitely to think about uh, both before starting the project and during this project for me, it was not uh, uh, the financial gains were not uh, the main, or it wasn't the motivation at all when I started the project. Uh, it only got uh, well, it became motivational later on when I actually published the book because it was a reasonable success. Uh, but uh, I would again advise everyone to work on such projects in their free time as a hobby, just to finish it off for yourself and make it like pleasant for yourself, and then. If you achieve this, people will like it as well. This is this I see from quite often from most projects people do. 
Well, now I want to turn around to the actual subject of the book itself. And you talk about, you know, the training of the VDV. You talk about how, you know, the ordinary... And you talk about how different uh, VDV soldiers had different uh, duration of training. But the ordinary VDV soldiers, uh, Strelok VDV, the rifleman, he would get training for two to three months in Fergana. Um, and for people who are not who have not read the book, uh, Fergana is a town in the uh, currently in what is today Uzbekistan, and at this time it was part of the USSR. And the soldiers who were going to be sent to Afghanistan, they were trained in this at the training base in Fergana because the climate was considered to be similar. And the ser- sergeants and the specialists they were trained in other facilities, sometimes for as long as five months. But you talk about the fact that when these soldiers, when they would arrive at Afghanistan, they would be placed in training facilities, because they were called quarantine facilities, where they would receive more training. And I would like to ask you, do you think that the fact that these facilities existed, do you think it's some kind of admission by the Soviet military that the training with the soldiers prior to this, they got, it, it was not very good? Because if we have these soldiers who are arriving in the combat zone and we are said training them more, does this mean that we are admitting that they are not ready? Uh, yeah, yes, this, this was the case. And uh, actually, I want to elaborate a little bit more about how the training process worked in the Soviet army. So uh, the whole uh, length of service was uh, two years uh, for the well, for the army and the air force. The navy served for three years. And uh, the training would uh, either be six months, as you mentioned, for the sergeants and specialists, or it could be as short as two weeks uh, in the quarantine that wouldn't even involve the Afghanistan. So most units uh, did have basically like quarantine-based training facilities where soldiers would learn the absolute basics within two weeks, and then they would be sent to the to their units, and they would serve as uh, regular soldiers, picking up and training for the with their speciality. As, as time goes on, uh, went on. So, so, so ju- just to recall, so if you're a regular soldier, you will be trained in the Uchepka, in the, or- in the original training base for maybe two or three months, and then you would be in the quarantine. Uh, no, no, you, you, you could be sent uh, to the regiment into the quarantine from day one, basically. So you, so somebody who is a VDV soldier, they could be actually sometimes sent directly to the unit uh, directly from where they are recruited and they just did straight up to Afghanistan, like this? Uh, this did happen as well. In the first couple of years of uh, war, this was the case. So the fresh recruits, they could be sent pretty much straight ahead to Afghanistan. They would get some training within the unit in Afghanistan. Yes, this is correct. Um, this does not uh, sound very encouraging. <laughs> uh, well, this was just the Soviet uh, army system. This is how it worked. So the, the Afghanistan was not considered a war. It was just the unit being in a in some area. It, it wasn't considered as it was in the uh, fighting situation. So all those units uh, did follow the same rules as any other regular unit on the mainland would. So the soldier would get into Afghanistan. He would spend some time there if his uh, officers, his commanders were well, normal guys, they would, of course, spend some time training him without sending him on any operations. And this was the case in most situations. Uh, but but this was the case. But before, I, th- I think it was in 1983 when the 
when the proper training facility in Fergana was established. And after that, uh, all soldiers would uh, go either through Fergana or through the specialist training uh, facilities in uh, other cities. Uh, so they would only get into Afghanistan after at least three months in, in those training units. But this only started to be the thing in 1983 and further on. So there's something which you say, you, you know, you talk about in your book, on one hand, you say you're right, and this is something which you explain, this is a sentence which you, word for word, which is in your book, you say that the soldiers value their officers' professionalism and their leadership skills. And on the other hand, you talk a lot about something which, uh, you know, we talk about as well as the Russian military. We often talk about it, you know, the Dovshina, the, the rule of grandfathers, uh, which um, which is for, for people who, are, who don't know, it is, a, it is a traditional phenomenon in the Russian military, in the Soviet military, where the soldiers who, uh, who enlisted men who just entered the units, they would be abused in different ways by soldiers who were around for longer, and they would be forced to do different manual tasks, and they would be, would be different kinds of physical and emotional abuse. And you say, and it, it's, it's, it's in your book, and it's in other places, in, in other books also on this topic, that the officers would allow this to happen. The officers felt that this was part of the military process to have this kind of abuse. So I would like to ask... These two statements, that on the other, on one hand, the officers were complicit in this abuse of the enlisted men. On the other hand, the enlisted men really respected their officers. Uh, there's a bit of a tension between these two statements. I, I understand what you mean. I understand what but, you mean. But, I, but, yeah. but maybe maybe even maybe it's a false tension. Maybe they are connected. Maybe you can explain. I, I can explain, if I will explain, it will make uh, more sense. Uh, so, uh, let's say in the regular Soviet Union during the peacetime, not in Afghanistan, uh, the officers would, of course, be valued for keeping uh, decent discipline in the units and the soldiers uh, in those units, which actually do have the grandfather rule and a lot of mocking, they would pay their officers for allowing this. But in Afghanistan, it was uh, kind of different, you see. So, um, in Afghanistan, soldiers would primarily... Uh, respect the officers for their abilities to fight and to the to lead the units in the actual firefights and the battles, and uh, they wouldn't care that much about the about how how officers reacted to the mocking and the grandfather's rule because th this wasn't the, at this point it wasn't their territory. So the, the sergeants and all the soldiers they would mock the younger ones, but this was all not as important as the as actually surviving and winning the firefights. So yeah, soldiers... The, so, would... the officer is there to keep you alive. Does he keep you alive? Yeah, yeah. So, so it, during the mocking, you could get beaten up, you can get humiliated to some extent, but uh, it wouldn't be a regular thing for someone to get killed. But in the firefight, of course, you could get killed, and soldiers would respect the officers who... Uh, were able to command well and who would actually understand what's going on because uh, of course uh, afghanistan was a very different uh, terrain and very different uh, scenario for uh, to those which were uh, studied and learned in the soviet uh, military universities and uh, lots of um, officers coming from those universities to afghanistan they would uh, blindly follow the book which was not which wouldn't work in the afghanistan conditions and this would end up in people getting killed without 
uh, well, by, by stupidity, basically. So those officers who could switch on to the new conditions, who could understand the geography, who could understand the scenarios of the firefights, they were very well respected by the soldiers. And of course, uh, soldiers praised them for, well, for p- picking the battles they could win. Which brings me around, you know, and your book is specifically it's it's specifically about uh, about the VDV, the, the, the airborne forces of the Soviet Union, and uh, focusing specifically on the 345th Regiment, which is of course a very in Russia it's a very famous unit. And through this, you can you tell us the story of the VDV as a whole. But I would like to ask, do you think that through this we can learn also about uh, the problems, the different uh, issues that the, the broader Soviet military had? What is the lesson here, if you, if I may? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can learn about the Soviet military in general, especially if you do not have some particular interest in some very particular units. This book would be uh, very interesting for anyone to have a look at, to read, uh, because uh, in general it does cover the Soviet army as a whole, because it was one structure, it was pretty similar anywhere, wouldn't depend where a person would serve, where the regiment would be located. Uh, and same goes with all those photographs and the equipment and the weapons. I mean, they were all pretty much the same. They all had some little differences. And for those who especially interested in those, let's say, airborne or Navy or whatever, they would definitely need different sources to learn about different uh, services and about different regiments. But uh, for people who have general interest in Soviet Army, Soviet Union, Afghanistan war, this book would be very interesting to have a look at. And the problems which we talked about with the the problems which we talked about with the leadership and the training, these were the same also in the other units in you know, in the Motostrelki or whatever. It, it was probably well, uh, airborne was uh, seen as the most elite part of Soviet service, part of Soviet army, and this was the case. Uh, so they were better trained, they were physically better trained, and they uh, had more motivation than uh, regular infantry or other troops uh, and but probably most importantly the officers serving in the airborne they were the most well they, they were usually the best ones the soviet army had so they it was much easier uh, to survive let's say in an airborne unit than in an infantry unit just because the officers would be better prepared for actual firefights so, if anything, other units had, you know, an even worse problems with the training than we have said, what we've described here. Especially during the earliest period of the war, yes, they they were not as well trained. Uh, they were not as well. They didn't have that much uh, practice on small arms and grenade launchers as the airborne would. So, like the, the essential arms of the small scales conflict. Uh, but this would all pick up, and let's say by. Uh, Mid-war, most units were on the similar level with, again, airborne were the elite ones because they just had better officers. Uh, but uh, the overall level would pretty much equal out by mid-war, I would say that. Which brings me, you know, in a very sad way, in a very sad way, unfortunately, this book now has a modern-day relevance, which, you know, Generally, I don't like it when military history books get a modern day relevance. And 
of course, um, you're a citizen of Ukraine. And so, um, and um, I, I, I'm just going to ask, do you think that there are lessons from uh, all of this, uh, from this history, history book, from the other knowledge which you have, which can uh, tell us about the problems which the Russian army is now experiencing? Okay. Um, well, um, the main problem that uh, Russian army has, in my opinion, or one of the main problems, and it comes from the Soviet times, is that uh, they don't uh, really pay that much uh, attention to the experience the army received anyway in any other conflict. So let's say before the Afghanistan, Soviet army was pretty much like a peacetime army. They didn't have any big conflicts behind their back for a long time. So the Second World War finished in 1945, so like 35 years ago. They had almost no personnel who stayed from the time because they were now older and retired. And uh, there was very little experience uh, from the... Uh, Hungarian uprising and the situation in uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968. But this was like really limited. And again, it was not well studied in the Soviet institutions. And Afghanistan was uh, has a similar effect, uh, let's say, because uh, Afghanistan was a much longer war. It was bloody a war. Soviet Union lost uh, quite a few people there and they could potentially gain and uh, evaluate a lot of experience from the time. But this was not done too well, let's, let's put it this way. So uh, one of my favorite examples uh, to describe what I mean is uh, how the Soviet uh, airborne regiments coming out of Afghanistan uh, handed in all the infantry fighting vehicles like the BMP-2s and BTRs and they received the regular airborne ones, so the BMD and BTRD. Uh, it, it's, it doesn't mean much to those who don't know the particular difference in those vehicles, uh, but if you think about it, the airborne-specific um, armored vehicles were really light, uh, really light cars. Basically, they it was required so that they can be transported, airlifted, and uh, paradropped with the airplanes. But this doesn't make sense in well in any modern conflict or in any conflict at all. But this was the situation of this. This is how Russian army operated ever since they left Afghanistan. So all the airborne regiments, they were all armed and crewed all those airborne-specific, really light aluminium tin-foiled vehicles. And this is what they used at the very uh, first uh, stages of the um, current invasion. And this played a really well, big joke on them because those, those are the vehicles which can be easily destroyed even with the smallest amount of firepower, like the 12.7 machine guns. Uh, unlike the BMP-2, which needs something a bit more sophisticated, like an RPG launcher, let's say. Uh, so, so if you see my point, that uh, the Soviet army didn't like to evaluate the small conflict experiences. They didn't like to put it in practice later on. They were all always preparing for some sort of a big war. And when it did come, all that experience which could be evaluated and used for practical purposes, well, it wasn't. And they have to learn now from the new mistakes and well, we see how it's going. Yes, not particularly well, is it? 
But that, at, at least for you and me, this is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. We are, <laughs> we are, we are citizens of Western countries here, so while this is... Uh, and in, in, uh, the, only, the only thing which I think is tragic here is that, uh, you know, first of all, these people have done it to themselves, and second, of course, as I always say, we, we always need to look at how countries make mistakes, how people make mistakes. Yes, because, it's best to learn from someone else's experience. Than from because, because you know, if we start thinking, "Oh, we are smart," this will not happen to us. We could turn out very, very disappointed in some terrible future. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> there is always a joke: if you cannot be, an, if you cannot serve as an example, you it will serve as a terrible warning. <laughs> And Putin's Russia is unfortunately currently serving as a terrible warning. Yep. And I would like to conclude our show with a traditional question. We're all uh, creatures of tradition here. I've mentioned that tradition is very important. Can you tell us maybe if there is some book which you are right now reading, which you would like to maybe suggest to the audience as well? Uh, Yes, I actually can. And this will be the well, the perfect suggestion for this show, I, I suppose. Uh, right now, I'm f- well, I almost finished the book called "On Writing Well" by William Zinser, uh, and it's uh, well, it's basically a guide on how to write well, how to put the words together, how to put sentences together in good paragraphs, and it's a really simple book to read. It's um, really well written itself, uh, and it helps uh, a lot to summon. Who, who's, who doesn't have English as a first language, like myself. And, uh, well, I, I did pick up a lot of little hints, let's say, and overall ideas of how to, how to be a better writer. And it's definitely important for me now, as the next book I'm writing, it's uh, much more text-heavy than, you know, than this Airborne one, which we're discussing now. So that it will be like, I think, around 50,000 to 60,000 words. Um, so... This is something I would definitely recommend anyone who is in who is working on any writing project or who is planning to 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 do so. Yeah. And well, if it's a book on writing well, it would be kind of worrisome if it were not well written. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But. I would like to thank you for being on this show, Vlad. And absolutely, when you finish your next book, I would like you to come back for uh, to us. This is it's, it's an invitation. Oh, great. Thank you, Boris. Uh, yeah, absolutely, I will. I, I actually hope to finish it really soon. Um, my plan, my timetable plan is to finish it by the end of Christmas time. So it will be so, published uh, early uh, next year. Hopefully, hopefully early next year. Uh, thank you for being with us today, Vlad. Thank you, Boris.